Howdy, this is Jim Rutt, and this is The Jim Rutt Show. Today's guest is David Krakauer, president of the Santa Fe Institute, which we'll usually abbreviate as SFI. <laughs> Hello, Jim. I'm mortified to be on your program. Oh, I'm sure worse things will happen to you before the day is over. David has undergraduate degrees in biology and computer science and has a PhD from Oxford Evolutionary Theory. David is my go-to guy when I have a question about evolutionary theory. Full disclosure, I'm a very part-time researcher at SFI, and I'm the past chairman, and I'm currently a member of the Board of Trustees. So yeah, I love the place and I'm probably going to be a little biased today. There's my full disclosure. So David, could you give us a description of SFI, a little history, today's focus? What makes it different from the many other research centers in the world? Yeah, so the Santa Fe Institute, as the name might suggest, is in Santa Fe, New Mexico. Uh, The Institute is up in an old mansion on a mountainside. And we were founded in the 1980s, early 80s, 83, 84, by a very illustrious group of individuals, several of whom had Nobel Prizes in physics and economics. And what they wanted to do was something rather radical, and that is use the methods that we typically associate with mathematical physics and theoretical computer science and apply them to problems that had been recalcitrant or resistant to those methods. And we call that the domain of complexity, and we'll talk about that. And so the Institute reflects the iconoclasm of that group and of their ambitions. We have no schools, we have no departments, we have no tenure. We're a networked research institute with two home bases in Santa Fe. And we essentially pursue difficult problems in complexity with no concern for their disciplinary provenance, typically using mathematical and computational techniques to arrive at very general theories. Very good. Complexity science plus or minus epsilon. It's fair to say, as you did, that SFI invented it. To your mind, what is the domain of complexity science? Any discipline, if you think about it, whether it's physics or anthropology or chemistry or economics, can be defined in three quite different ways. By their history, the fields that in some sense inform them, by their domain of application and by their methods. And complexity, the domain, is the domain of adaptive phenomena. Sometimes we say the domain of networks of adaptive agents. So that could be the neurons in your brain, that could be traders in an economy, it could be individuals in a city. It could be an ancient civilization made up of guilds. So any system that has many agents, each capable of learning and forming some kind of representation of the world in which they live to some strategic end is what we study. And historically, that kind of system has been very difficult to predict. And so look look how good we are at predicting the orbits of the planets and look how bad we are at predicting financial collapse. And so that gives you a sense of the differences between those two domains. So we now drawn a line at strategic for complexity. I remember uh, when I'm told to stay when I read in complexity, things like sand piles are sometimes considered examples of complex systems and they certainly aren't over the strategic line. Yeah, I think that's an interesting point. I think that gets to this distinction between a definition based on history and method versus domain. And so some of the methods used to understand avalanches in sand 
pile formation come from non-equilibrium statistical mechanics, which is a very important tool in our toolbox. But the domain is the domain of the complicated, not the complex. And so that, that's an interesting point. And that's why you always have to bear in mind which of these three perspectives you're taking. There are many folks out there who think about complexity purely methodologically. So they'll say things like, oh, you do agent-based modeling, or you do genetic algorithms, or you use scaling theory or network theory. And that's a very methods approach. So I think at any given point, you're triangulating between these perspectives on what a complex problem is. People used to often say, yeah, complexity is about nonlinear dynamics, right? But again, that's a lens to look at complex phenomena. Exactly, exactly. I mean, so that's a good example of something that goes back to the very end of the 19th century in the work in particular in celestial mechanics of Henri Poincaré, where he discovered these very anomalous chaotic trajectories in so-called three-body systems. And that kind of mathematics that Poincaré was developing has proven to be extremely useful to study chaos, for example, in a whole range of different uh, domains. And so but that is just a method, as you say, even though it's a very deep one, but physicists would use that to explain celestial mechanics, which is not a domain of complexity. Something that comes up in popular discussions of complexity, and believe it or not, complexity has enough visibility now that there are actually popular discussions of complexity, even on the internet. And that's the relationship between complexity and reductionism. Could you speak to that a little bit? Yeah. So reductionism is the most, in some sense, accomplished method of science. It's what we sort of learn. What are things made of? You know, what are the fundamental building blocks of nature? And we will subject any system we find to extraordinary destructive processes to try and ascertain what their constituents are, the most obvious of which are super colliders. And we can do that with anything that we observe. You can do it with people. Unfortunately, uh, if you do that with people, you'll end up with a, an aggregate mass, which is not very interesting, but you can determine that they're made of cells and the cells are aggregated into tissues and organs and, and so on. So that's reductionism. It's understanding by means of enumerating the constituents. Now, now, there's a huge problem with that. Just think about a mechanical clock. You know, if, if I said, Jim, what's a clock? And you said, well, I can tell you what a clock is. And I'm going to step on it and you pull apart its components and you find that there's, you know, hands and there's a bezel and there are pinions and wheel trains and so forth. That's a quite different kind of understanding than the understanding of a watchmaker who can put those parts together in order to create a simulacrum of the solar system in order to tell the time. And the same goes for water. You could say, what is water? Well, it's made up of lots of these hydrogen and oxygen molecules, H2O molecules, and uh, you can even describe the basic properties. It's a polar solvent. But if I asked you, what is a phase of water? How do you go from a liquid to a gas to a solid? That transcends your understanding of what it's made of. And you go to the brain. You can say, what is a brain? Well, it's 86 billion neurons. It's about 85 billion glial cells. We understand that they conduct signals electrochemically. We know that they are connected chemically. But how do 86 billion cells create differential geometry? How do they make a podcast? So all of these examples I've given show the critical challenge of emergence, which is the flip side of reduction, which is how do the components come together and manifest in the collective properties that are not trivially predicted from the properties of the individual component. And we call that emergence. 
emergence. And the history of science is a history of reductionism. And with the advent, to be honest, of computational power and algorithms and some new theories, we're now only now beginning to create a science of emergence, which is where complexity tends to place more emphasis. It's not that we don't do reduction. It's just that um, reduction has been, in some sense, the dominant school. And we're really pushing this other one, which is don't just break it, make it. I like it. A little analogy I've used, I'd love to get your reaction to it, is reductionism is the study of the dancers while complexity is the study of the dance. That's good. Exactly. That All of these metaphors, if you like, that capture this fascinating property of the collective. And that, that that's, in some sense, the challenge. And it's, it's very interesting, by the way, Jim, if you look at the history of physics, how limited that has been. There are areas where we've done that very well. The best known is thermodynamics and statistical mechanics, which is the ideal gas law, which is a statement that relates essentially pressure and volume and temperature. That can be actually derived from an understanding of the parts. And because temperature is not a real thing, as you know, it's just the average kinetic energy in a system. So that's an example where we do have a kind of theory of emergence. Another very good example is the theory of superconductivity, where electrons momentarily overcome what we call Coulomb repulsion, and they form Cooper pairs and manifest this property of having zero resistance at relatively high temperatures. Again, that's an area where we actually know how to go from the atomic level constituents of matter through to this collective phenomena, which is non-dissipative transport. If you ask the same question of the brain, we don't know where to begin. There's nothing like a theory of superconductivity for thought. Or even for life, really, right? Definitely not for life and not for the economy or anything else that we here at SFI and complexity scientists care about. But that's the gold standard. Another distinction, which is getting some attention out in the world, a lot of it from a guy named Dave Snowden, who's uh, maybe the leading thinker about applying complexity science into the business world. He makes a distinction between the complicated and the complex. And his short form description of the difference between the two is that a complicated thing, like say your, your clock, could in theory be taken apart and put back together again. But a complex thing could not be. You know, For instance, imagining taking apart a cell and putting it back together again and having it work, not going to happen. Do you find that a useful distinction? I don't like his definition. Okay. I like the distinction between the complicated and the complex, but I think he's wrong about how you make the distinction. Ah, let's hear your version of the distinction. Okay, let's get the right one on the table. Yeah. The, the complicated is true. A clock is complicated. One way to think about it is all of the parts obey classical rules of physics and the difficulty, it might be that we can't, by the way, reassemble it. So that's why it's not, that's a statement of current level of knowledge and ignorance. It's not a statement about the domain. It's too subjective. That's its failing. So there are many people I know who can't assemble something much simpler than a clock. Let's call, say, say a toaster. And I'm not going to say that's a, a complex system because they can't do it, right? And so for his argument to work, you'd have to invoke some omniscient being that couldn't do it. And then it would be a sort of contradiction in terms. So I still think it works. So a complicated thing is something essentially where the elements are what we would call stationary. They, they don't adapt. They don't learn. They don't evolve. The engineer can evolve the clock, but the clock's elements don't, right? The moon doesn't become a better moon. It doesn't become a better orbiting mass because it's been doing it for 4 billion years. So complicated systems theory scales very well. 
So Newton's general theory of gravity, which is, of course, much further extended by Einstein in his general theory of relativity, is a beautiful theory that applies to all masses everywhere in the universe. And regardless of the size of the system you're studying, that same elementary set of equations apply. That's a complicated system. A complex system has this property that we would call extensivity, which means that as the system gets larger, the description length, the theory gets larger too. And so it's like saying, if the universe was twice the size, Einstein's theory would have to be twice as big or more. The, the same theory wouldn't apply. And that's the hallmark of a complex system. It's actually in some respect irreducible and the theory has to grow in proportion to the growth of the phenomenon itself and that's because the the components adapt that's a very nice distinction though it does draw a line with things like deterministic chaos on the non-complex side of the line presumably yeah that's actually a very interesting example and that's a really important distinction of art so we make a distinction between the size or description length of the phenomenon and the size or description length of the generating process. So you can write down, as Poincaré did, a very short system of equations that generates chaos. Yeah, or Lorentz equations. There's many examples. Beautiful examples. Just a three-dimensional deterministic set of differential equations. But if you generate the behavior, it looks near random. And so the description length of the output grows in the system size. And that's really important in, in complexity science. When we say theory, we mean theory of the generating process and not the theory of the output. Beautiful, beautiful. That will help people, I think, a lot. You know, another example where that distinction comes in is in some of the cellular automata examples, you know, the rule 120. Very simple to define the process, but the output sure the hell looks complicated or complex. But So from your definition, rule 120 in cellular automata is definitely not complex. Yeah, that's actually very interesting. That's exactly true. And so the Wolfram class of cellular automata rules are all more or less the 256 rules of the simple one-dimensional deterministic model are all more or less the same length but their behavior wildly different some of them are Turing universal some of them produce chaos some of them produce very simple crystal lattice-like structures so yes you can't be fooled by the description length of the object and that's why again the universe is complicated not complex now the distinction between emergence on one side and the units on the other gets us into something which is often called top-down causality. What's the current thinking on that as a valid topic? Well, that's interesting. So this is a very confused philosophical area and is, I think, unnecessarily mystified. The canonical example of top-down causality is in fact what we're now doing. Let's give a very simple example. I decide that I want to take a sip from my coffee cup. So somehow that thought that exists as a mental construct now is translated into the activity of hundreds of millions of neurons. So how do you go from a thought to this microscopic domain of mechanism? And that's what people mean by top-down causality. And the mistake they're making, of course, is to think that the thought is not already something encoded in hundreds of millions of cells. It's just what you have access to introspectively in your consciousness is a much lower dimensional subset. So again, normal causality would be like a billiard ball, right? You say, I'm going to hit this ball into that one, and we have a theory of, you know, uh, inelastic collision that allows us to predict how long the ball will roll on the surface. Straightforward causality. Top-down seems to be a violation of intuition because it goes from one to many. It sort of says, I go from a very coarse-grained phenomena to a very high-dimensional phenomena. But the mistake being made is, you're not. (laughs) 
because the thought already exists in the very high dimensional domain. So I think it's actually a flawed concept. Let me give you another example uh, that I use sometimes when people are talking about top-down causality. I'd love to hear your thought about it. Think about the chemical elements in one of your cells, you know, a mixture of carbon, oxygen, hydrogen, sulfur, various trace minerals, etc. If they were not embedded in a system of far from equilibrium of homeostasis driven by chemical reactions, those elements would kind of disperse in a random physics-y fashion. But because they're embedded in this much larger thing, a, a network of homeostasis that operates on the scale of seconds, their behavior is very, very different. And hence, one could argue that the causality of their behavior is driven by the higher order system, i.e. an organism in which they live. Well, I would actually think, I think that's a good example, but I call that complex causality as opposed to top-down causality. Ah, could you tease those apart for us? I can. So most of us in our lives are kind of amateur Sherlock Holmes-like thinkers, right? We try to deduce from a series of events causes, cause-effect relations. That's what our brain likes to do. And we're particularly delighted when we can find simple ones. So if you think about economics, they like, well, what happens if I turn the interest rate up or down? And I can make very simple predictions that work on average in relation to consumer demand and spending. So that's simple causality. Now, complex causality is the example you gave where I want to understand a matrix of components, all of which are highly connected, and there is no dominant factor that explains the behavior of the system. You have to somehow integrate the behavior of all of those elements over different time and different space scales. And that's complex causality. And, and the reality is, Jim, as you know, that's much of the world. But much of our science is complicated science, which means it wants to find theories of very short description length, which translates, by the way, into simple causality. So if you look at the structure of a solar system, what is the primary causal factor? Gravitation. You can basically get all of the different structures that we observe, large-scale structures, out of gravity and initial conditions and the distribution of mass. So very simple causality. Unfortunately, when it comes to things like cancer or neurodegenerative disease or the state of the economy, it's not at all clear that there is something as simple as gravity, social gravity, that's what the Enlightenment wanted, that is the dominant causal factor. So you have to integrate over all of these components and it becomes very messy and the theory becomes very large. And that's why, by the way, we'll get there, I guess, machine learning is so popular because machine learning puts all of the factors in and gives you an opaque model of enormous complexity. Now, there's one been proposed deep theory of complexity, particularly in things like biological systems or other adaptive systems, which is Perigogene's uh, far from equilibrium energy flux. In the example I just gave, we could argue that the metabolism as uh, distributed by homeostasis within the systems is essentially the single driver, which allows complexity to arise. I know the Santa Fe interpretation has generally been somewhat anti-Perigogene. Could you speak to that? Yeah, well, it's it's interesting. So, I mean, there's a, there's a sense in which what Perigogene says is both elementarily true and also fundamentally false. I mean, so I guess the larger picture here is the systems that that school, the Brussels School studies, are what we would call dissipative dynamical systems or time irreversible dynamical systems. And, and we would all agree that that is one of the prerequisites for complexity, um, that there is an arrow of time. We can get to that. But it's not useful. In other words, it, that elementary insight doesn't really help us very much. And there is this very 
very intriguing allure of the one-dimensional monocausal theory. And it's everywhere if you think about it. You just have eyes to look for it. It's in the economy, and we call it price. It's in psychology, and they call it IQ. And in any domain, you can sort of find this push to build a theory around the lowest dimensional representation that's possible. And so, as you say, to say that there is some energy density or now the popular theory, the free energy principle, we can talk about that in a bit. It's looking for these one-dimensional scalars which are being optimized. And their weakness is always the same. It's It doesn't really give you a purchase on the details of the system, which, by the way, are what you need if you're going to build them. And that was the great beauty, by the way, of Newton and Einstein, because the theory, which is simple, translates into practice. Ballistics, <laughs> orbits, Einstein, GPS. Whereas these complexity versions of complication are actually not very useful. That's an interesting insight. You've hit on a topic in passing, time. And I know that has been a topic at SFI of late. A few episodes back, we had Lee Smolin on as a guest, and he has some very radical theories of time, uh, some of which are in opposition to Einstein. You know, he argues that time is fundamental and space is emergent. He also tries to argue that maybe time is universal and not relativistic. What is your current thinking? Because you mentioned the arrow of time. Where does time fit in the family of phenomena? I, I like to think there's two very distinct approaches to the question of time. One of them is the physics approach to time, which is exactly as you just mentioned. Is time fundamental or is time emergent? That's another, by the way, current popular theory that time is not really there. Einstein believed that, incidentally. Then there's another approach to time, which has to do with the direction of time, what we would call the arrow of time. And that's associated with Eddington. And it says, why does time flow forward preferentially and not backward? And that's quite distinct from what time is, right? Because you can still invoke the clock as the model of time in the arrow of time framework. So there are two very different theories out there about the direction of flow of time. The physical one is based on the second law of thermodynamics, that entropy increases in time, disorder increases in time. And the simple way of thinking about that is that there are more ways of being wrong than right, right? There are more ways of breaking an egg than making an egg. Now, Darwin had a very different view. Darwin said there's another law as fundamental as the second law of thermodynamics, which is the creation of order in open systems by natural selection or by learning. And we are interested in what we call complex time, which is when you combine the two theories. You combine the second law of thermodynamics with Darwin's law of natural selection. And out of that come entirely new temporal phenomena, including lifespan, right? Or the lifespan of a civilization or the lifespan of a city. These phenomena, complex phenomena, are not accounted for in any physical theory. And to explain them, you need to integrate the physical arrow of time with the Darwinian arrow of time. And that's what we're trying to do. Very cool. I know some of the empirical work that SFI has used on the characteristic lifespan of various entities like corporations and cities and animals, etc., based on their size, would provide some data to work on that theory. Could you talk a little bit about the relationship between the empirical side and the theoretical side with respect to complex time? So with complex time, as I said, we're trying to 
to balance the entropic processes, things that fundamentally disorder a system, and the ordering processes of learning and selection. And where those two dynamics find their fulcrum will determine the length scale, the duration, the lifespan of the phenomenon of interest. And so let's take a few examples. So most of this is what I would call phenomenology. In other words, we don't have a theory of this. So as you know, SFI researchers have done a lot of work on the half-life of companies. And when I say half-life, I mean that because the distribution of lifespans is exponential. That is, it mirrors the half-life of elementary particles, atoms, that are decaying through some appropriate sequence. Now, where does that come from? And we have some basic models that can tell us why that must be true. And they're based on what's called the Red Queen dynamic, which you know very well, which is that in very competitive systems where both parties are nearly evenly matched, then the distribution of lifespan is expected to be random. A good example of that would be this. If I played Kasparov at chess, in every game he'll kill me within less than, let's say, 10 moves. So the games would all be very short, right? If I play someone who's almost equally matched, then the match will be longer, right? And you can ask, how long will those be? And if the outcome is no longer based on differential skill, it'll be based on chance. So the company example is a very intriguing one because it suggests very efficient markets. And when the lifespan of companies, for example, under monopoly, uh, live longer than you'd expect by conformity to the distribution, you know the market's inefficient. So that's one example. And the same, by the way, the same pattern is found in the duration of an evolutionary lineage. So for example, how long does a species survive? How many millions of years? Or a genus or a family? And again, the same argument applies. They're very competitive. The Darwinian process tends to optimize, to find near optimal strategic solutions, not optimal. And in those regimes, chance dominates. And so you get, again, an exponential distribution. But if you look at cities, they don't follow an exponential distribution. In fact, some people, my colleague Jeffrey West, would say they're immortal. Now that's not true, but they live a much, much longer longer time, which suggests that it's not competition between cities that's determining their lifespan, but something inside of them, right? Some endogenous dynamic. And that's a dynamic that we still don't understand, by the way. So why cities have a very skewed lifespan towards very long lasting, unlike companies and unlike evolutionary lineages? Well, one one thing that just comes to mind thinking here out loud is that cities do have a monopoly on their space. That's interesting. Yeah. So that they don't allow any other organization access to their essential resources. And you know, everybody else that we talked about has to operate in uh, four dimensions while the city only, uh, you know, basically operates in time. It's got its physical dimensions essentially fixed. That's overly simple because, of course, cities grow and shrink. But to the degree that they currently occupy land, they have a monopoly on that land. Well, I think it's actually a key insight because if you think about, again, lifespan as being this balance between entropy and selection. In fact, it's interesting, you can make a cell immortal by giving it enough energy to fix its errors. In other words, the Darwinian process can compensate for the entropic process if the resources are available. And if you look at your own body, epithelial cells live on the order of days, neurons live on the order of decades, and the brain takes up disproportionate metabolic free energy, and it uses it during sleep to repair cells. And so you're right, if you have access to a disproportionate quantity of free energy, you can use it to nearly halt the production of entropy. That's interesting. Yeah, entropy versus actually, that's very good. Very good. 
now we've talked all around it, but let's focus more directly on theories of complexity, sort of at the higher level. Like, you know, where are we with developing either fundamental or partial theories of complexity? What would you say are the cutting edges of complexity theory that's being worked on? And what would you describe as theory that we can safely say is sound and rely upon to build upon? So I would say that, again, we would want to try and create a kind of typology of theory. And one way to do that is to make a clean distinction between models and theories. And one simple test I use to distinguish between those two is the difference between something that explains how versus something that explains why. And I'm going to be using this distinction. So let's think about the game SimCity. SimCity is a model of a city, and it actually could be used to do science. But it doesn't tell you why there are cities. Why their cities are not just a bunch of marauding bandits or nomads. So theory tries to do the why. So when I talk about theory, I am not talking about models because, of course, there are an infinite number of computer models in the world, near and infinite, for many, many phenomena, and they can't any of them explain why the world exists in the state it does. Okay. So when it comes to theory, there are not many. The current efforts are trying to do the following. The history of theory in physics is basically based on energy. And out of that, symmetries, fundamental symmetries of nature, of the kind that my colleague here at SFI, who died this year, Marie Gell-Mann, won the Nobel Prize for in predicting the existence of elementary particles based on symmetries. And in the 1950s, a whole series of new theories started to emerge. Information theory, game theory, cybernetics, or nonlinear control theory. And they were an effort to reckon with what we were describing earlier as the complex domain. And one way to think about all of them is that their efforts to combine energy with information. Now, if energy is about symmetry, information is about broken symmetry. And you think about it in some elementary way. If you ask me, David, when I leave the Santa Fe Institute to get to town, should I turn left or right? That moment you're in the symmetric state because left and right are equivalent. I break the symmetry by saying go left. And the history of complex forms is the accumulation of broken symmetries. That's what history is. It's what your brain does. It's what your genome is. It encodes contingencies, decisions, make that enzyme, go right, use that weapon, right, etc. So all of these new theories that are emerging are trying to reconcile the symmetric and the broken symmetric, energy and information. And that union feels like computation. One of the reasons why computation has emerged as not only a tool to use to do science, but as the dominant metaphor for what complexity is doing, because it's the one quasi-unified framework of thought that integrates energetics and information. And that's the basic background, I think, to um, what all theories of complexity feel like. You mentioned computation, and uh, more and more I'm seeing computation as a measure of complexity. What is the shortest form of a program that it would take to cause the complexity that one sees in a system? Is is that a reasonable uh, way to think about measures of complexity? And what other measures might there be? It's reasonable. One of their problems is that they tend to suffer from the subjectivity of human ingenuity, which is probably one of the characteristics of the domain of complexity, by the way, which we might talk about as a philosophical challenge. Everyone is familiar with the idea of 
observer dependence in the Copenhagen interpretation of quantum mechanics, but actually complexity science has much richer observer dependence to mean that the complexity of a phenomena actually relates in some very profound way to your subjective ability to theorize about a system. And a good example is what you just gave, which is computer code. This is sometimes um, called algorithmic depth. It's associated with a very early SFI researcher and at IBM, Charlie Bennett. And the idea is how long is a piece of code that can take you from a random input to an ordered output? And that's called algorithmic depth. And so it, it feels a little bit, if you think about it, like natural selection. It says, I want to go from a state of uncorrelated fit to the environment, where everything is approximately equally bad, to something where one thing is a very good fit. And the number of generations required to create a good fit is the organic analog of algorithmic depth. And so evolution, according to people like Daniel Dennett, our colleague here at SFI and at Tufts, would say is actually doing a computation, but it's doing a computation in a population over many generations, as opposed to in the memory of a computer over the course of hours or years. And so there is a very strong analogy between ordering processes and algorithms that achieve that in solid state devices. And how applicable is that to other kinds of systems? You know, uh, people have made claims of Kolmogorov complexity as a fundamental uh, measure of complexity. One of the big problems with this way of thinking is, even though in some sense it's certainly right, it's extremely difficult to measure. Kolmogorov complexity is a very good example. It's articulated in the framework that we call Turing machines, invented by the great British mathematician Alan Turing to solve a long-standing question in mathematics, which is whether or not a proposition in advance could algorithmically be said to be true or false. And he showed very famously that you could not. It's called the halting problem. And it was a wonderful tool that Alan Turing invented to prove a theorem in mathematics. But you can't use Turing machines in the real world, as you well know. And so there have been efforts to construct alternatives. Currently, the most popular framework is the theory of circuits, which can be shown to be Turing complete in some instances. And they actually have a more direct mapping onto the real world. And as you know, that's something that many of us here at SFI work on, which is take a natural phenomenon, like an economy or a conflict or a brain, using principled means, turn it into a circuit. And then in some sense, the size of that circuit is a measure of the complexity of the phenomenon because it has a direct correspondence to it. So there are efforts along those lines. When you talk about circuits, you're talking about basic uh, electrical circuits? Like, like circuits with ands and, and ors and, and nors and not gates. So exactly a circuit that you would know well. And the nice thing about circuits is, again, something you're very familiar with, there are very principal means of compressing them. And so you can represent a computational scheme in a circuit, compress it, get the most minimal form, and then the complexity of that form is in proportion to the complexity of the phenomenon itself. Very interesting. As you you may remember, I was actually involved with two different companies that used uh, evolutionary computing techniques to either synthesize or improve circuits. And both companies were very successful, and those people are still around. I'm going to have to reach out to uh, Trent McConaughey, who actually is going to be a guest next week, and I'm going to have to ask him about this, the idea of circuits as a measure of complexity. Yeah, it's very nice. There's actually an SFI researcher, uh, Josh Groschow, who's one of the world's experts on this. Very interesting. Now, let's pop up one level and talk about science overall right now, and something you and I have talked about over lunch more than once, which is that we're seeing more and more science that is data-driven with relatively little regard to theory. What's your take on this phenomenon? The way I like to describe this, and I sort of alluded to this a little earlier, is we're now experiencing a schism, like the schism in the church. 
And the schism is a direct outcome of complexity. One way to think about it is as follows. If I could explain consumer choice using classical mechanics, model individuals as billiard balls, we would have no machine learning. It wouldn't be necessary because we have a perfectly adequate theory to explain a complex phenomenon, but we don't. And a consequence of that has been the growth of statistical models that are completely opaque to human reason, but can be shown in some very limited domains to be highly predictive and more predictive than the best theory. And it exists by virtue of complexity, that sort of property that we've now established, which is this irreducibility of the description. And computers have no concern for elegance, right? That's not their game. Human minds do. At the same time, there is this other sort of emerging tradition of complexity science that, as I said, grew out of game theory, cybernetics, information theory, nonlinear dynamics, non-equilibrium statistical mechanics, theory of computation. And that says, maybe there's another path, a sort of a third way. And that is develop new mathematical tools that are the analogs of the tools used by Maxwell and Kelvin and others, but describe phenomena at an aggregate collective scale. For example, we talked about that, the organism, the city, the society, the economy. Use those as what we would call our state variables and predict them. And that's the complexity science approach. So what's happening now is this schism emerging between what I call the sciences or statistics of prediction and the science or mechanisms of understanding. And going forward, I think we're going to see this divergence increase. So we'll have two distinct camps. Those who are content to be told what the world will do, and those who are content to understand what the world does. And science historically has been about understanding, with prediction there as a kind of utilitarian excuse. But I think given all of the challenges of the planet, utility is paramount. And so how we integrate complexity science with machine learning, I consider, by the way, the challenge for thinking people in the 21st century. And data science is kind of agnostic about those two. More data is better for complexity science, more data is better for machine learning. But what it presents to you is very different. And I think we have a choice to make, actually. And it might be an ethical choice, an aesthetic choice about which path to pursue. And if we pursue both, how to somehow achieve reconciliation. Of course, we will pursue both trajectories. And actually, we'll be pursuing a third one, which may actually upset your dichotomy, which is true artificial general intelligence that can solve the hardest problems in a way that is accessible and explainable to a human. Yeah, I don't believe in that, as you know. <laughs> I think that I, I actually don't believe that there will be a, for reasons which I think we could go into, predictive theory of complexity that's understandable. In other words, you either go this coarse-grained path, right, and forfeit all those microscopic degrees of freedom that are so delicious. You know, Jim likes to buy this kind of toothpaste, right? That's what machine learning wants to tell you. And you forfeit that in favor of a much more general theory of demand. Or you go down that path and you give up understanding entirely. I think it's something intrinsic to the domain of complexity that tells us, and I think there'll be a theory as general as Heisenberg's uncertainty principle that says that you can't know, say, position momentum at the same time. I actually want to claim that if you can do high resolution prediction, you cannot explain it because you cannot throw away complex causality. You, you can't have your cake and eat it. There's a gap between the two. Yeah, if you if you maintain complex causality, which I think you need to for prediction, then you're not going to get understanding. Very interesting insight. Now let's switch direction again and let's talk about your own research. I remember uh, back in the day, your one sentence summary was the history of information processing in the universe, right? And then you narrowed it to the history of information processing on Earth. And yesterday I looked up on your uh, 
website, and it now says the evolutionary history of information processing mechanisms in biology and culture. Why the narrowing? Yeah, I don't know. It's it's some kind of PR nonsense. Good. That's what I was hoping. I was hoping you weren't pussying out in your old age. Absolutely not. In fact, it's got better. I mean, that's the kind of nonsense that people want me to write. But here's the real story. I think the way you started is right. Now I've actually extended it. I like to call my work The Evolution of Intelligence and Stupidity in the Universe. Oh, why do you say the multiverse just to make it a little bit bigger? Why not? I think that the reason to restrict things to the Earth is just the dictates of empiricism because we just don't have good enough data. But the theories that we work on ought to be sufficiently general to encompass any form of life. Yeah, so my own work is on the evolution of intelligence and stupidity and in particular the machines uh, that exist that manifest these effects. Brains are the most obvious ones, but societies, polities, cells, proteins, genomes, they can all be said to adapt. So I need to define intelligence and stupidity for your audience. It is not IQ. To call intelligence IQ is one of those beautiful instances of cultural stupidity that we might get into. Intelligence is making hard problems easy. That is, establishing a mechanism or rule system that enables you to very efficiently arrive at a correct solution. So for example, mathematics and arithmetic or calculus or topology all give you deductive rule systems that can guarantee that if you adhere to them will produce from some input a correct output. And stupidity is not ignorance, which is insufficient data to reach a conclusion. So you can't be faulted for ignorance because you can always recover. But stupidity is the application of rules that are guaranteed in infinite time to give you the wrong answer, right? And I always like to tell people, and everyone knows this already instinctively, when you're at school, right, and you're the smart kid in the class, and people say, God, you make that look so easy, Jim. And you then explain that you have this rule and they can all do it. The stupid person has the following characteristic. Everyone looks at them and says, why do you make that easy problem look so hard? And society is absolutely rife with rule systems that are stupid, that actually produce worse than random performance. And of course, as we all know, investment strategies are just full of this. So a Rubik's Cube is the example I like to give. I can give you a cube, and if you happen to know the so-called God algorithm on the 3 by 3 by 3 cube, the standard Rubik's Cube, you can show that if you apply that algorithm, you will solve the cube in 20 moves or less. Okay? You might solve it in zero moves if I give you the completed cube. Now, a stupid algorithm is like the following. You take the cube from me and you say, David, I can solve that, no problem, give it to me. And you just manipulate one face. Now, if the cube is not already solved, in the lifetime of the universe, you will not solve it. Yeah, assuming it's disordered enough that there is no single rotation that'll solve it. Correct. That's stupidity. And you can actually go through the history of, of culture, looking at rule systems and actually classify them. And part of what I've been doing is precisely that, which is trying to come up with a much more nuanced theory of what intelligence is. And one of the great advantages of this, by the way, is you can apply it at any scale because it's dependent on the on the function. So you can ask, how well does a cell follow a gradient? Is the rule provably optimal? How well does a fish shoal? How well does a bacterium divide? How well does Jim calculate? How well does an economy clear a market? So it's a truly evolutionary theory of intelligence that allows you to express in quantitative fashion the intelligence or stupidity of any phenomena that's essentially solving a computational problem. That is what intelligence is. And unfortunately, our anthropomorphism and short-sightedness has caused us to restrict our discussion to one human, one species, namely humans, and contrive one-dimensional metrics which are very uninformative like the IQ. And so that, that's what I try to do. And that's why I call it the universe. Because in fact, there's a sense in 
which you might even, as our colleague at SFI Seth Lloyd claims, describe the universe as computational. And if that were true, actually calculate how smart the universe is. That would be interesting to see. Might not be that smart. At least an intelligence density. It's probably not that smart. Right, right. And that's an interesting distinction. Uh, I'm going to ask you about a couple of things I know you've worked on in the past, uh, which I think our audience might be interested in. One is the role that policing serves in maintaining social stability. So this is long-term work with a colleague here at SFI, Jessica Flack, who you know very well. And Jessica and I have been interested for a long time in what you might call robustness, which is if you're in a non-equilibrium system where the second law is in operation, how do you maintain sophisticated states of order? And one of the problems with complex systems is conflict. And you can define conflict in a very simple way. It's where the parts are imperfectly aligned. So conflict is when agents have misaligned or imperfectly aligned strategic objectives. The classic case is the so-called zero-sum condition, where my gain is your loss. Now that's an extreme case, and it doesn't have to be that extreme. So that's conflict. And conflict is present all over complex systems, and it has to be because there's no global information. Every agent has slightly different windows on the world, and that leads to misaligned strategic objectives, even if they don't intend to disagree. So what do you do in systems that are full of conflict? You have to develop robustness mechanisms that maintain states of order. And one of those is policing. And policing is essentially impartial interventions into disputes by third parties who have no vested interest, right? And we did much work on this for years, really led by Jess's work, looking at non-human policing, human policing. And one of the very surprising things that you find is that with true impartial policing, that is where there's no bias, you can maintain complex states of order with almost no police. Very, very small fraction of the population polices. But as you increase the partiality or the bias, you have to increase the number of police to maintain order. And it's a very interesting observation because it has direct implications for what we would call police states, right? A hallmark of a well-ordered society is one where the number of police is relatively small in proportion to the total population. Whereas a dysfunctional society is one where actually everyone, as we all know from, say, Eastern Germany, at the peak of the Cold War, everyone was in some sense acting in this policing role, which is characteristic of a non-robust state. So that was one whole set of issues we worked on in relation to the control of conflict. And we've taken that much further, actually. We're now at a point where we study large-scale wars in whole continents like Africa using techniques from statistical mechanics called the renormalization group. And we've discovered all sorts of universalities. And this is actually with a student of ours, Eddie Lee, and, and, and a postdoc and Brian Daniels. And now we can do some extraordinary things. We can actually take conflicts, we can represent them as circuits along the lines I told you before, and we can, in the computer, in some sense, replicate the conflicts that we observe in the world and ask what is the most effective intervention in order to control the conflict, to move it in a certain direction or to reduce it. So this goes way beyond policing because you're no longer intervening just into single individuals, but into a principled subset of the population to achieve a desired outcome. I remember another result, I don't remember if it was yours or somebody else at SFIs, was that in decentralized policing, where essentially there's social sanctions for bad behavior, you also had to have a second order policing, which was to punish the non-punishers. Yes. Yes, this is this phenomenon that's been recognized since antiquity, which is who polices the polices. And this is a very uh, popular paradox in the evolution of cooperation. But you can actually make that problem go away by making policing 
policing low cost. And so one of the challenges of policing is the risk of policing, right? So there's a free rider problem, in other words. If you're a policer in my society, what is the incentive for you to take a risk with your own life? And what's happened in complex systems is that they've developed very sophisticated voting mechanisms or consensus generating mechanisms, which appoint temporary policing roles at very low cost to the policer. And that actually eliminates the game theoretic challenge of policing polices. And, and it's not so well known, but it's it's crucial, actually, because if it wasn't for that fact, no one would adopt um, that responsibility. Can you think of a, a way to apply that to our society? Well, it's interesting because one way in which we apply it to our society is when you're truly democratically elected, right? In other words, if I have confidence in your abilities, Jim, I'm going to say the following. I say, look, I'm going to enter into a semi-binding agreement with you such that for the next period of time, let's say a year, I'm going to allow you to mediate my disputes and I will not contest your decision. And the consequence of me not adhering to that agreement is interesting and has to be established by some second mechanism. And that's how it's accomplished. It's actually accomplished through systems of trust. If you don't have the system of trust, right, say you have a corrupt society, then of course it doesn't work. And I, and I think it's very interesting, incidentally, that this one of the areas where this, as you well know, this question is being very, very hotly pursued is in blockchain technology and the associated cryptocurrencies, because trust is the fundamental problem, how you achieve it, the energetic cost of achieving trust, and particularly in the domain of Ether, where you're, ta- you're now dealing with smart contracts. So I think this question of policing and the stability of ordered states in the decentralized condition is actually socially the world that we now live in, and resolving that in a principled way, I think, will be very, very important. And I know the SFI has now started a bit of a program in understanding what's going on in the blockchain world, because that is interesting. You know, my own view is that the attempt to achieve trustlessness at the foundation of many of the public blockchains like Ether and Bitcoin add a essentially insurmountable obstacle to making them sufficiently efficient to scale. And that what we really need is some meta engineering, which decides for a given purpose, how much trust do we have to give to some entity to make the system cost effective? I mean, we know Bitcoin is ridiculously expensive, like 5% of its net worth per year in mining. You're correct. We've been actively engaged in this. And I'll give you a beautiful example of this, of how biology has solved it. And I think that the blockchain community are slowly gravitating away from proof of work to proof of stake. And I'll give you an an analog, it's not exact, of proof of stake in the biological world. So you're your body is made up of billions of cells and cancer is essentially the phenomenon where one of those cells or one or more says, I can go my own way. But there's a very interesting feature of multicellular life and that is the germline, the egg and sperm cells, are sequestered early in development and only they get to transmute into the future, not your epithelial cells. And that means that there's this extraordinary proof of stake. Every cell in your body has to work for the common good of the germline. They can't can't go it alone. And so we have learned, I think, from the study of adaptive systems, one way of accomplishing trust, and that is to limit your propagation into the future, right? To have a sort of a shared future. And I don't think that the blockchain community is yet caught up with, I think, your observation, which I think is absolutely right, that there is no fundamental decentralized
decentralized means of achieving trust without imposing some institutional regularity on the system. And as you know, I mean, this is why companies like Facebook have closed systems because the inefficiency of the fully decentralized system cripples it. Yeah, there may be a time in the future because when costs come down enough for the computational substrate that things like a decentralized Facebook would make sense. But I hear business ideas all the time for a decentralized Facebook and I throw three or four examples. So how would you do this, right? How would you search the whole damn thing, for instance, right? Turns out to be a problem that's just not resolvable, even at today's pretty remarkably inexpensive computation. So people who take these things as uh, religious doctrines, you know, absolute trustlessness, or it must be decentralized no matter what, strike me as uh, not likely to actually solve the world's problems. No, I mean, it's, it's, it's a statement of ideology, not a statement of principle. And you can learn from nature. I think biomimicry is useful here. I think biology has accomplished some very interesting balance between decentralization and centralization. And by, by as I said, the sequestration of the germline is perhaps the best known. The other example that's quite intriguing is outside of the animal world, in the world of plants. A tree, right, is actually one of those things, phenomena, where a epithelial cell can become germ. So flowers can grow, uh, reproductive tissue can grow out of somatic tissue in plants. But, and the reason it's not a problem for them is because they divide so slowly. So the time scale of strategic opportunity is actually very limited relative to the lifespan of the organism. Uh, and so that's why in the plant world, they do achieve actually total decentralization. Whereas in the fast-paced animal world, we have to develop these new meta constraints to allow for a partially de decentralized system. This is very interesting. I'm going to have to do some thinking on this and talk to some people I know that are in the uh, thinking about the you know, decentralized autonomous organizations and see if they can find some meeting of the minds here, because this, this might be a well, way to bridge these problems that I was referring to earlier. Let's talk about one more of your former projects, and then we'll move on. And as you know, it's one that I'm very interested in, which is memetics. You did some uh, very interesting work with Dan Rockamore, I think, and some others on the memetic propagation of constitutions over time. Yes. This all falls into the scope of work that engage with intelligent systems, which is the means that culture has discovered to propagate good ideas into the future. And it also, unfortunately, is also responsible for propagating bad ideas into the future, like racism or sexism, that in some sense piggyback on all of those good mechanisms. So, um, yeah, we were very interested in how a structuring set of codes, on the one hand, transmitted into the future, and two, how they actually transform. And the Constitution is a beautiful laboratory for studying that, right? So we have this sort of 18th century structure, and it encodes a set of ideals and beliefs that very loosely govern behavior, but very loosely. And it's actually one of the characteristics, as you know, of the American Constitution to be very minimal. The American Constitution to me is much more like a law of physics. It's highly compact, and it regulates approximate behavior. In contrast, for example, to the Indian Constitution, which is far longer and includes many contingencies to regulate specific behaviors. So it sort of takes the place of state constitutions in some sense. So we were interested in whether or not the idea of Dawkins and Dennett of a meme is real. And our argument was, the only reason you'd ever invent the concept of a meme was to explain phenomena that you could not explain without. 
about it. And the history of genetics is illustrative, right? The only reason we have the concept of a gene, which by the way now is eroding before our eyes, is because it could explain a certain pattern of morphology across generations into the future. This is what Gregor Mendel, the monk, did, right? He explained a regular alternation of form. And the gene was like the atom. And in fact, Mendel was very influenced by physics. He studied physics. Uh, he studied meteorology and wanted to look for something that would correspond to an atom that could explain the structure of matter and wanted to discover for life the periodic table. Thus, if you go to the world of memes, that's what you would want to do. You want to say there is a periodic table of culture and there are rules of composition that would allow us to explain the dominant forms of cultural life. And that was the large ambition of our constitutions project. And I think what we discovered there was that there are units of meaning that are propagated in time, but they're much more fluid than even genetic sequences, which themselves are quite fluid. And so the idea of a meme is probably not as useful as some people think because it's too mercurial. For it to be valuable, it would have to have a cohesion on the time scale of many generations. And there might be some phenomena that in fact do, actually. Property rights, for example. But many do not. And so what we really need to do is develop a, a sort of diffusive memetics, a sort of a more cloudy concept, which isn't as particulate as Dawkins and Dennett wanted. And it's not surprising because they came out of biology, right? And the world of Mendel. And so that's what we were doing. We were basically using machine learning techniques to discover these kind of cloud memes and ask how they recombine to create new constitutions. And um, we were quite successful, I think, in doing that. But with this modified concept, which doesn't yet exist, I think, at large, which is a sort of a, this much more diffuse constellation of ideas. Yeah, but you might find a, a body to look into is the case law uh, in the un, you know countries like the US and uh, the UK that have a British common law uh, with a series of precedents, which are kind of hazy memes. Like, you know, they're not necessarily word for word, but they're concepts which are applicable and do evolve over time. Right. And I think that's a good example. I think, I mean, I've talked to Dan Dennett about this a lot. And what Dan is forced to do, because this criticism is in fact insurmountable, this criticism of memetics, that what Dan is forced to do is in the end, say that the word is the meme. But then you say, Dan, that's called the word. Yeah, why did you need to develop a new term for the same, but we already have a term for the word, right? Exactly. And science is nothing if not ruthlessly parsimonious. And so if you're going to give me a new term, it better account for a new phenomenon. Okay, let's, complexity science has, uh, you know, I think you and I both believe great applicability into the world, to the problems that society and the whole world face. But often those things are perhaps best delivered into real world problems through metaphors, metaphors of complexity. What do you think about that as they uh, call it the complexity way of seeing, which may or may not even be uh, formally scientific? Well, I actually, I'm, I think we're now at a point, I'm much more optimistic. I think that both are true. So I would say the complexity way of seeing is, is vital, but actually we could enumerate, and I'll mention some areas of direct application that have an impact on everyone's life. I guess everyone who listens to this podcast. So on the metaphorical front, one of the great curses of the history of human intellection is simple thinking, finding simplicity where it does not exist. And we've already covered this in terms of looking for simple 
single causality, wanting to live in a one-dimensional manifold, the manifold of the IQ, for example. And as you know, I mean, you can almost write an entire monograph about how society's ultimate ills are the result of society's desire to simplify unnecessarily. And so in that respect, complexity is vital because, again, everyone knows that you can't talk about climate without talking about culture, without talking about economics, without talking about energy, without talking about transport. But somehow, through a completely attenuated and deficient educational system, we've been raised to believe that you can and that problems are disciplinary as opposed to transdisciplinary. So I think the simplest instance of complexity thinking is to be probabilistic. So anyone with a love of sport understands perfectly well that the outcome of a game is not deterministic, right? Unless it's like me playing a basketball game against Chicago Bulls. So in the domains where you have knowledge, you're subtle. But somehow when it comes to other areas, areas of science or politics or economics, people become all sorts of weird binary automata. They become deterministic. Huge problem. And so thinking about probabilistic phenomena as opposed to deterministic for me is like the first base towards the complexity metaphor. But you can go beyond that and start thinking about connections and systems of dependence over long timescales. So you can say, I'm going to maximize my short-term economic interests, and that's fine. But you have to understand that it's going to compromise your long-term economic interests. And any investor knows that, right? But you can extend it further and say, well, perhaps my long-term interests depend on my house not being underwater in 20 years' time. So there is a way of thinking in terms of systems that is immediately applicable by anyone who has the time to put into it that would be transformative of the state of the world. And that's just a metaphor. And what's so neat, I think, about complexity science is that for every metaphor you have, there is a rigorous principle that corresponds to it. And so when we talk about things like weather and the economy, there's nonlinear dynamics. When you talk about systems of independence or dependence, there's network theory, right? So you can sort of dive deeper and reveal underneath the metaphor the model and underneath the model the theory. And I think that's why complexity science is so enriching because it justifies a system of folkloric belief. Interesting. I've been seeing it happen, but slowly. And I've been associated with the Santa Fe Institute since 2002. And I got my first exposure to what I would now call complexity science back in 1997 uh, when I read John Holland's Adaptation in Natural and Artificial Systems. And uh, you know, I think the first metaphor I used was coevolutionary surfaces as a way to think about mergers and acquisitions in corporate America. But I've seen these kinds of ideas propagate, but relatively slowly. You know, what's your view on how the view is getting out into the world? I think it's, you know, we're sort of in that accelerating phase now. It's very curious. I mean, look, I mean, we are essentially kind of sloths, aren't we, when it comes to exercising our brains. That we, we, we conserve cognitive energy almost more than we conserve anything. So there is a reluctance. But I think the world is suggesting to us that we need to engage with this complexity more fully because of the technologies of connection, because of transport, you know, because of globalization and all that that implies, you can't really hide from complexity any longer. And so that will change. And then the educational system hasn't caught up yet, as you know, right? I mean, you go to school and you still take a biology class or an English class or a civics class. What does that mean? It, it, somehow the disciplinary worldview is militating against this complexity view. 
we need to find a way of dealing with that directly. Well, our education system is probably worse than it was when I was a kid in that uh, everything I hear from teachers is that a remarkable amount of their efforts are now going to teaching to the test in a uh, very reductionistic fashion. They're not even interested in mathematics or biology. They, uh, they're interested in what's on the standards of learning exam that the kids have to take. I know it's a disaster but here, but this is something that you and I have in common, which is where I'm very optimistic is in the world of gaming. Because if you look at the sophistication of simulations and the sophistication of game designers, which is a community that we actually engage with now increasingly, they're putting into their games precisely these kind of complex intuitions that the world needs. So, you know, the, the great paradox is kids going home being reprimanded by their parents for playing SimCity or Minecraft. But I would actually argue that in some very deep way, they're developing an intuition there that they're not getting at school that will prove invaluable in their lives. Yeah, I would say the things I learned playing uh, war games back on the, uh, you know, the map board and little cardboard pieces were of more, at least as much value as everything I learned in K-12 education. Right. But I do want to take it to this area of application because it's something so important to point out, which is that complexity science has changed everyone's lives. So I'll just give you a few examples. Theoretical immunology and epidemiology. That is the application of nonlinear dynamics, agent-based models, and network theory to disease. The standard protocol that the WHO uses to develop the flu vaccine is based on mathematics and methods that were in part developed here and at Los Alamos, right? So everyone who goes and gets a vaccine is touching our science directly. Network theory. Anyone who's now online and using Google or Facebook or Instagram or any other network-enabled software is in one way or another touching algorithms and principles that were developed by SFI and affiliated researchers. Another example, the development of compounds with pharmaceutical value. Francis Arnold at Caltech, who recently received the Nobel Prize for her work, spent, as you know, a lot of time here developing systems for optimizing proteins using evolutionary algorithms, in particular the principles of neutral networks. Again, work developed at the Santa Fe Institute. Reversible computation, quantum computation, how to solve the problem of energy dissipation, heat production in circuits that are getting smaller and smaller and following Moore's law. The whole theory of reversible computation in part was developed early on by SFI researchers who then went on to work in quantum computation, which is obviously a very hot topic. Markets, again, this is something close to you, financial time series prediction, leverage cycles, new evolutionary theories of macroeconomics developed in complexity economics at SFI. So there are really numerous areas by now where methods which seem a little bit um, esoteric have found application. And I like to tell people the following. If I was a physicist studying black holes, which generates a huge amount of interest, that will not be relevant to you or your life or anyone else you know for several billion years. But if I work in network theory, what I have to tell you will be relevant in your life within a year. So there's something very interesting about complexity science and the domain of complexity, and that is the methods that we develop to understand that domain are almost immediately useful, as opposed to methods that tend to get developed to deal with phenomena that are more remote from everyone's everyday life. And certainly the, the real problems uh, that our society is facing, you know, the monster of them all, climate, is clearly a complex systems problem at multiple levels. You know, weather itself is a complex system, but then when you couple it to culture and economics and politics and religion even, you have a, 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 a 
a network of multiple complex problems. Exactly. I mean, actually, in that and developing, as you said, the metaphors, the models, and the theory to reckon with that kind of world is what the world needs through its leaders. Actually, I would claim in the 21st century. I think this is without making any political or editorial uh, remarks about current leadership. The one thing is absolutely clear is they're incapable of thinking through complex problems, and that's got nothing to do whether they're left or right wing. It's because they just don't know how to think about complexity. And I think being exposed to these ideas is going to be critical for our long-term survival. So you're throwing your hat in the ring, crack hour 2024? Someone actually suggested to me, with, you know, this kind of a feat accent, I would go nowhere, man. I would tell my listeners, despite his posh British accent, he's actually been an American since the time he was born, so he can run for president. Yeah, I mean, look, go back and see what kind of accents the founding fathers had. I bet they were completely messed up. One thing I would suggest make a plug here is we recently, I just edited a book, uh, which you can buy on Amazon or anywhere else, called Hidden in Plain Sight. And that book basically reviews 30 years of complexity thinking at SFI with contributions from many of our notable researchers. And I think that's a good place to look for your listeners to get a sense of what's been going on uh, and the kinds of ideas that we've been generating. I just bought that book, actually. It's sitting near the top of my 2B Red stack. Put it at the top. All right, David, this has been a wonderful conversation. Unless you have a few minutes, you want to take a whack at the Fermi paradox? Yeah, I will take a whack at the Fermi paradox. Before you do that, let me remind our audience the Fermi paradox goes back to uh, Los Alamos during World War II and some bright young physicists probably were talking about all the uh, intelligent species that must be out in this large galaxy and these many, many galaxies. And they were trying to do some estimations of how many, and there was lots of them. And uh, Enrico Fermi, the uh, one of the most senior and esteemed of the scientists, came over to their table and said, okay, where are they? And so that's the paradox. Maybe they should be there, but there's no sign of them. But maybe they're not there. So, David, Fermi paradox. I already told you what I work on. I work on the evolution of intelligence and stupidity in the universe. So it won't surprise you that my answer to the Fermi paradox has two components. The first is that we're too stupid, and the second is that they're too smart. And so let me explain that. The history of science is the history of not seeing the world, right? Gravitational waves, subatomic particles, the gene, the neuron. The history of science is the discovery of signals that are a clue to how the universe works. And it takes huge amount of time to find complex patterns. So I would claim it would be extraordinary hubris to believe, given the relatively short duration of empirical theoretical science, that we would be in a position to detect a signal generated by a vastly more intelligent form of life. So that's the too stupid answer. But then there's the too smart answer for them. This actually comes out of work that we did here at SFI, my colleagues Chris Moore and Michael Lackman, and they proved a beautiful theory. They showed that any sufficiently optimized signal using principles of information theory would be indistinguishable from noise. And so if aliens are communicating with each other intelligently, as opposed to broadcasting absolute garbage through their homegrown television studios, we actually wouldn't be able to tell the difference between a signal and noise. That's because they're too smart. And so as civilization advances, the technological signal starts to converge on the biological signal, becoming more and more efficient, and therefore being almost indistinguishable from background radiation. So my answers are, we're too stupid and they're too smart. That's why we haven't found them. But you think they're probably out there. There's no doubt. No <laughs> doubt. Know? The 14-year-old boy still lives on in crack hour. 14, the 10, the 8, the 7, the 4, the 2, and the 1. Yeah. I will say, I've been reading more and more intensely on the Fermi Paradox for the last 10 years, and I've now gotten myself back to pure agnosticism. There's just too many unanswered questions. You know, how hard is 
the uh, high information fidelity DNA architecture to achieve? Uh, how about the eukaryotic cell? You know, maybe that was once in a galaxy's uh, long shot, or maybe not. Fortunately, we'll get some clues to some of these answers as we start analyzing the atmospheres of Earth-like planets and things of that sort. But there's still, I'm now, you know, say purely agnostic. I could, I could see it going either way. Yes, they're there, or no, they're not. But you see, I, I would say one thing that's really important to remember, right, which is that really on the order of a decade ago, we didn't even know that there were exoplanets. That is true. Right, so, and now we know that there every single <laughs> planetary system has at least one exoplanet. And so this is remarkable to me that we're talking about why is it it's taken, has it taken so long to discover life, but we haven't until a decade ago discovered that there were even planets that were Earth-like. So I think that it's too early to call this one. And I wouldn't be in the slightest bit surprised if given the rate of accumulation of exoplanet detection, and as you said, incredible advances in cosmology um, and astronomy, that we wouldn't detect unequivocal signals of biological life in the next decade or so. Could easily happen from the atmospheric studies. Coming from the uh, James Webb telescope, I believe, will be where they'll find it first. Well, David, this has been everything I would hope it would have been. A wonderful, far-ranging, erudite conversation and got some applicability to the real world. Who would have thunk it? I know. Well, Jim, it's always an absolutely marvelous occasion talking to you, and I hope that this has been of some interest to your listeners. I believe they will definitely like it. Production services and audio editing by Stanton Media Lab. Music by Tom Muller at modernspacemusic.com. Music.